National Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. In this episode, we speak with Rabia Nasir and Hamat Al Ain, two artists from Pakistan who are in Sydney presenting a live performance work as part of the Public Body O2 exhibition at Artspace. Rabia and Hamat are performance artists who have collaborated for several years. They work as artists, curators, and educators in Pakistan and internationally. In this episode, we discuss their collaborative practice, what we can expect from their work, and explore what it means to be a performance artist today. More information about the Public Body Exhibition can be found via the Artspace website. I am Rabia Nasir. I make art, I teach art, I curate art, I write about art. Um, yeah, basically I sleep art, eat art, do all of that. Um, and my practice is such that I am continuously making work because there isn't a real distinction between work and my everyday lived life. And that's where my interest lies, that um, it's informed by my everyday lived life. Um, and. Um, and yeah, so, and I don't see my curatorial role or my scholarly activities as any different from my artistic activity because they're pretty much the same thing. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I curate shows like I make art um, and I don't see that difference. Uh, and teaching is a very, very uh, important part of my practice. It informs my practice heavily. Uh, I'm Hormat and um I've been um, working and uh, living in Pakistan for uh, quite some time now. <laughs> um, I am an artist, I work across mediums, um, I do sort of like think about my work in terms of performative terms and uh, that uh, crossover into, from a visual artist to a performance artist and uh, back to a studio um, artist, it keeps on happening all throughout and that is where uh, Rabia and my practice overlaps because uh, I think we both think about ourselves at the center of our work. Um, and that might be a very kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, concern that arises from self-portraiture, but through uh, very, very contemporary mediums. And um, apart from that, I've been also uh, teaching at uh, the School of Art, Design and Architecture in uh, Islamabad, where I am currently uh, residing. And how would you describe the work that you'll be presenting at Artspace? The one that we're doing on Friday is definitely a live art performance. It's durational, it's ephemeral, um, it's, even its documentation is not such that you can show it later in any way. Uh, we're not even video documenting it, it's just, yeah. So it's pure performance, live performance. 
talk? Is that is that talk what you meant? No, no, that's absolutely no, no, no. There's two things that I want to say to that. One, I have to say I love the fact that there is no documentation from that because I think what you do is then take away the objectification of work, which mm. can happen with performance work, and I think that's so important to do that um, because people are listening and gonna try and ask more descriptions around the work if that's okay mm, sure, yeah. um so we kind of can tell the story for the listeners mm -hmm. if that makes sense so what will be involved in the live performance work lots of crying <laughs> it's it's yeah it's it's called dropping tears together and what hormat and i are doing is um chopping onions for a very long time like four or five hours um yeah. Oh, <laughs> and so, yeah, and it's a lot of onions. So yeah, we're looking at a few like bags of um, <laughs> onions there. Um, yeah, and um so the idea is to uh, do a task, a simple task, a domestic task, which is chopping onions. And onion is a very uh, kind of important ingredient in a lot of South Asian uh, cuisine. Um, especially uh, in reference to what we cook in, pa in Pakistan, and um, while and it's also it has another layer in terms of like the conversation that we have with each other. Um, for the last few years, around two to three years, Ravi and I have been living separately in like different countries, and um, our collaborative practice is also something that you know uh, is under sort of um, uh, is is a concern right now in terms of like where is this. Is it placed geographically? And um, so these kind of opportunities where the piece becomes an avenue to, to learn more about each other and have a conversation that you normally may or may not be able to uh, have or not have the opportunity. So, um, uh, and it's layered with the task. So, or you can say it is masked with the task. It could be either. Um, so yeah, we're looking forward to having you guys if you are going to be around. I absolutely will be around. And I think um, that uh, repetition as well of the task. I would ask, because when I think about crying or chopping onions, also when you're cooking, there's a sense of hospitality or a sense of openness to other people. And how is it as performers to allow people into that really private space mm -hmm. as well. So um, the last time we did it, it's been performed four times now, four. Um, and the last time we did it, uh, we invited audience, I actually loved it that time, we invited audience to our house, um, in our kitchen we were chopping onions, and people could hang out in our living room and just enter the kitchen whenever they were ready. Or go back to the living room, hang out, come back, so on and so forth. So it was a very, very private space. It was our home, and then the kitchen. Uh, whereas in the, in our culture, in the Pakistani culture, we don't allow our guests in the kitchen. Um, yeah, the guests stay in the drawing room, not even. So in that sense, it worked very beautifully. But in the gallery also, uh, we're lucky that the space that we're using is a small, closed space, and so the Practically, it works also. The stench will accumulate better. Absolutely. And as soon as people enter, it will make them cry also. So the whole idea is that we cry together. And they can stay as long as they like or as, or as short as they like. So a sense of intimacy is also really important. 
Absolutely, and uh, there's another layer to it which we are we don't decide on it very much. Um, is the storytelling bit, the sharing of very very intimate stories. Um, but sometimes it's just a silent piece. Other times when we feel like talking, if there is something, uh, we use it sort of like as a trampoline for ourselves. Does sound become important? Because when I think, like having not seen the work yet, but I think about also the knife on chopping boards as this monotonous, almost metronome that becomes a counter for the performance in your bodies and your cry yeah. and crying yeah. as well. Yeah. And also it's semi-violent um, because we, we try and not do it in that fashion, uh, but definitely it's a knife against a chopping board and so I think we're very aware of this idea that it's already like the the innuendos of violence are already there in the piece and over such a long consistent uh, period of time. So I think we don't try to overplay that necessarily because uh, because in a way it's also about uh, opening up sort of uh, doors that allow uh, the audience or our witnesses to sort of step up. Um, and be close and intimate because that is like holding a knife in your hand and being sort of uh, aggressive with it in any way possible would completely change the piece. Um, so there is a certain, um, uh, let's say, uh, care involved in the sort of the process of chopping, but also to get the chopping right in terms of uh, you know how you you think about like getting all the same kind of pieces. So there's a certain meditative quality to uh, in your observation as what kind of chopping you're doing and, you know, to get it just right. Yeah, absolutely. And the openness that it creates, because we both, as someone who just chopped onions and ball last night, <laughs> 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 that pain. How long have you two been working together collaboratively? Officially since 2007, but before that, when we were students at the um, at the National College of Arts, when we were doing our undergrad, um, we I, we spoke a lot about doing a collaborative degree show um, for our thesis, but we were not allowed to for whatever reason. Hermit was in the painting department, I was in the sculpture department, and there was lots of dialogue about work and how our process of making work, so on and so forth. Um, and the ideas and what, what interests us. And how would you describe your collaborative process and how it functions between your disciplines as well? It's like going to your friend's house with your toys to play. Really, that's how I would describe it. <laughs> you, you're taking your toy tea set to your friend's house and like, let's play tea. <laughs> Love it. And, but on tea, because you were also part of the tea collaborative project as well. Right. Yeah. Can you describe how that works? Because a lot of your work is relational practice as right. well. Yeah. Um, and how that situates within an international, maybe, and local context. Right. Um, so when I was in Islamabad, um, I was meeting up with these people, um, surprisingly, who were also making work around tea and with tea. And they, they were also doing a lot of sort of like across disciplines. So there was somebody who was uh, making these tea cities 
uh, drawing them for a very, very long time. And then um, there was uh, another, uh, my, one of my collaborators from the T Collaborative, she is, um, she studies uh, the practices of Wabi Sabi and you know, sort of she um, accounts them and reads about them and things like that. And um, so we had this mutual interest to you know think about and we would always come together for our meetings and have tea like any other respectable Pakistani <laughs> group of people who do. <laughs> so there is this constant you know like idea that we come together for tea as opposed to because there's no culture for like having bars or you know uh, coffee shops is also very recent kind of an uh, like a affair in Pakistan. So tea places or tea stalls are, is a very very um, uh, age-old concept. And what does it do to bring people together? And what does it do to you know sort of like take it into places where it may or may not belong? And um, so that idea is, I think, constantly important for uh, because it also makes one think about you know whether you're pretending to do it or you're doing it for somebody else's sake. Because there are people who love tea and they can have tea at, at any point, and there are people like myself. I don't, yeah, I don't like tea like the Pakistani way with milk. Um, I'm uh, uh, lactose intolerant, so it's difficult to sort of, you know, like have the chai the way we make it at home. Um, uh, but there is, it's still a very, very social, uh, inclusive practice, you know. So I think people at home, back home, don't even ask who, el who is going to have tea in a, in a gathering. It's just expectation that there's going to be more cups than the number of people and everybody will have it. So, uh, and I think that sort of also resonates with what Ravi and I do because we already work with so much of food and we uh, work with the idea of like bringing people together uh, in uh, and using food as a liaison. Um, so the Tea Collaborative also does a similar thing but it does, in, it does that in public spaces and it goes to these um, politicized public spaces like uh, you know uh, one of our um, spots that we chose for the uh, Collaborative Tea Party was um, right the next morning after these riots had happened in Islamabad at the D chalk and um, uh, basically they had burned down these big trucks and containers at that spot and they were putting the fire out at that time so we just sat in front of one of these trucks and we had tea there and sort of like just had that ritual and, and obviously there is there was a thing that you know we were shaking from inside because we could either get get sort of arrested or in trouble but it was still this kind of a the idea was that we will get through this moment, just have tea, you know, like sit down and have tea. So part of, if I was to kind of paraphrase a bit, is slowing, um, you guys also slow things down. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, th that's right. very, very nicely put, thank you. Uh, we, can we use it the next time? <laughs> <laughs> like, about slowing things down. Yeah. Uh, because speaking of relational works, there's another one, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's, uh, it's called Crow Effect. Where Hermit and I invite complete strangers over for dinner for a three-course Pakistani meal, and we do it only in foreign countries. We never do it in Pakistan, um, and the whole idea behind it is that we temporarily become hosts in countries where we are otherwise guests. So just power relations switch ever so subtly, but but in a very interesting way. Um, and speaking of how you were saying that it's not documented, you were saying about dropping chairs together, um, there are no photographs of us eating, of anything, there's no video, audio recording, nothing. It's like having any other guest over at your house. Um, the only way we document it is that we ask our guests for a post-dinner email.
and that's it. It's their version of what happened. Uh, we never use our version of what happened. Um, and it's that single guest is the only witness, the only audience, the only participant yeah. for the work uh, for that evening. So, and yeah, relational. That's fantastic. And the fact that also that relationship between host and guest mm -hmm. in geographies and when you're talking about the um, tea collaborative and also let's say this practice being performed, how important is geography and space and public space to your practice and to the ideas that you're kind of intervening or changing those spaces? Um, I think lately geography has become very important for me because as I'm traveling and also I'm living in, I was living in Ethiopia for two and a half years and now I'm in Sudan. And it was, it's just that I get asked, where are you from all the time? And the moment I say that, what it means, and when I answer Pakistan, what it means in the US and what it means in Ethiopia and what it means in Sudan, uh, it's very, very interesting. Um, so in Ethiopia, I'm always, like people start speaking in Italian with me. Um, they don't even think for a second that I'm not Italian, in Ethiopia generally. Um, but whereas in Pakistan, I'm instantly the Pakistani. Um, and then I'm asked whether women can go to school, can women dress like this, don't I feel liberated, etc., etc. And so that really informs my practice. And I'm very interested in how we perform these kind of identities, which are like more specific, but then all sorts of identities, the people that we are through our acts of representation in our everyday life. And and then the Crow Effect project also in some ways does that, where we're, because we're continuously playing the role of the cultural ambassador as artists. Um, it doesn't matter if we are on a diplomatic trip or not, <laughs> we are constantly playing that role. Uh, also, when you look at a work of an artist, where they're from helps you read their work. Um, their gender helps you read their work. So those are things you can't escape in any case. So that really informs the work, and that's where this interest in performing these identities lies. And so it becomes, as you kind of mentioned, performances, self-portraiture as well, but also challenging other people's constructions. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel like it's also about like challenging your own uh, expectations of uh, of what you know like a prescribed uh, identity is, and you know when you uh, Rabia was talking about this idea of like uh, moving and traveling and what does how does that affect or change how you think about yourself and who you are, I feel like um, that's the thing with when when you lose your confidence about what you think you exactly are, that's the moment when in a way magic starts to happen. That's also the moment when uh, art starts to happen, where you're questioning things inst instead of answering them. And um, and I feel like that, that can happen when you're, when you become aware of the, like the structures of power that play in identity, that play Absolutely. in hospitality, that play in um, art, in everywhere. But you're also sort of um, aware where you stand in it. And instead of like, fighting against it, you work with it, you take it, and, and that's where humor, I think, comes I in, in, our, that, yeah. in our work, you know, because we're very aware of this, uh, this idea that um, the, the telling of a joke is the sort of like moment where 
power shifts from someplace else to you and um and and so this this kind of like play that Rabia was also mentioning a little bit before the playing of identities and the playing of roles and the playing of telling of jokes is an important kind of aspect to what we do well, i think in this time playfulness becomes even more important because there is no space for that anymore mm. and to be able to facilitate that like you guys do is quite extraordinary and quite it captures this moment of intervention that's really 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 great a critical mass of performance that um, is performance art and art that's in Pakistan and also within um, the movement of Pakistani artists across the globe. Um, I, I became interested in that um, in 2008. That's how I wrote this. Uh, my master's dissertation at the Art Institute was about performance art. And because I couldn't go back home for research, I started writing about work that I knew of. And I noticed that most, if not all, of the works were made by women. And most, if not all, of the works were talking about performing an identity, self-portraiture, performing self-portraiture. Um, or maybe this was my interest, which I was imposing on my research. Who knows? Uh, but so the, it became this project, which is uh, uh, this text called Promises to Keep, where it's this idea of the obligations of belonging, uh, where you're continuously like fighting with yourself also. Um, so that text now in 2017 became a curatorial project, which I just curated this June um, in New York at Apex. And, and I showed works of all of these Pakistani women doing performance art, but it's not strictly performance art because some of these works are, it's, it's text but how the text performs and how it talks about performing an identity, like Ramat was saying, playing these roles, um, so on and so forth. And in that text also, and through this exhibition also, I was trying to understand the, the reason for employing performance as a medium or a form. Who knows what it is, whether it's a museum, medium or a form. Um, the reason for doing that. And I feel like, um, the simplistic layman language of performance art in in relation to the, the the content of the work is what makes these artists use it. And then to understand that even better, I'm developing an archive on performance art from Pakistan. And the more I'm looking, the more I'm researching, I'm collecting material from all over the country. I'm trying to include everything right now. I'm not at a stage where I'm going to say, oh no, I'll include this and not this. I'm including everything. Um, and one thing is that it's the it's a, it's very popular. It's become very, very popular all of a sudden. Um, and so everybody wants to board that wagon. Um, and so some artists who make very conventional work now at the opening do a performance, which is only a demonstration of how they make the work. And then I'm like, you're just making my life harder because now I have to go find that documentation and come and talk to you for two hours and include this conversation in the research. I, yeah. So now I think it's time to decide what goes in the archive and what doesn't go in the archive. But then um, 
a lot of these artists who are employing performance are interdisciplinary artists um, who are genuinely using performance for certain works. And, and a lot of these artists I've noticed, again, this is something, this is my interest, I may be imposing on my research, but um, a lot of these artists I, uh, I've noticed the, the distinction between their everyday lived life and their artistic practice is blurring. There's that crossover, which is why performance finds its way in their work. Uh, that's probably one reason. But then another reason is that in this day and age, how you know how curatorial programs have become so popular? Every step, now there's residencies for curators. I didn't see those 10 years ago. Um, every school, every nonprofit, everybody is talking about curation. And I think that's because our relationship to the art object has changed. So. Who wrote that essay called From Object to Relationship, this architect? Yeah. Mm. I, I, uh From Object to Relationship. And I think in today, it's that essay is very relevant, that even if we are curating an exhibition or looking at a painting, we no longer talk about the object. We talk about our experience of the object, our bodily relationship with the object. And curator is that person who creates that experience for you, So, which is why I think and then, now that we're talking so much about the experience, uh, I think performance, even in Pakistan. So these are just questions. Um, you're asking very important questions. But yeah, I, I'm still struggling with them as I'm collecting my material. Uh, but I'm very excited about this research, um, this archive. And how would you, because part of it, uh, like part of it I would argue, looking at um, when you're doing your work, to show people the process of doing your work is, is performative but may not necessarily be performance. How would you define performance practice then? That's another question I'm struggling with, with the research, that how does one define performance? And on the surface it might look like an obsolete question uh, because performance has been around for so long um, and it, these questions have probably been answered but really have they been answered? Um, and also, I don't, I'm not interested in that set definition of performance art that comes from somewhere, but then I can't fight it because the term performance art I, that I'm also employing comes from some, somewhere. So I'm not interested like those historians that redefine modernism for Pakistan or India or, yeah, and talk about plurality of modernisms in the transnational global world. I'm not, I'm not interested in any of that. So, fine, I'll just stick to performance. Um, but then, how is it relevant in this context? So, fine, some people say that Jackson Pollock was the predecessor of performance art. So, am I also going to go look for works in Pakistan which are gestural? Because we did have some gestural painters who did do live performances in galleries where they're just making their painting. Uh, but then if intention of the artist makes a work performance, then that qualifies. Uh, but what is my definition? Because it is certainly, no matter how much I say it's objective, it's certainly going to be my definition. Um, and I'm not so worried about that because I'm not interested in historicizing it or intellectualizing. It's just, I'm interested in it. That's it, period, me. So my voice is going to be very present. Um, but then I I'm including also works that may not be considered performance because the artist is not physically present performing live actions, but it's the work is experiential or temporal. 
Um, so those works are also included, so on and so forth. So it's, yeah. And some stories are included. There is no documentation of those works. The artists are now retrospectively calling them performance sometimes. Uh, or they're saying that they did a performance, but they didn't invite anybody to it. Sure. Role of audience, some or witness somewhere, even one. Like yeah. you guys have been able to do it with one yeah. witness, yeah. but I think that would question that relate that experience or experiential. Yeah. There. Which is why I'm interested. I'm very interested in the witness's role because if we say performance is experiential, whose experience are we talking about? We're creating as many experiences as many witnesses. Um, each one is going to be different. And then when we say document, does a photo do? Like, does it do what it's meant to do? No, does a video do that? But then each one of us, we have to have portfolios, we have to have documentation. But we, even if the performance, uh, the presence of the camera spoils the performance, we still have a camera, so on and so forth. So I'm very interested in the witness's role, and I'm collecting witness accounts for all of the performance included in the archive. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a task. It's, it's, a, it's quite a task. So uh, yeah, at least one for each work, but more if, if I can find it. And for your works, because you guys both document and don't document, how do you navigate that tension? When do you make that decision on if you include a camera to disrupt or? Right. I think um, I, I think I can safely say this for both of us that um, our relationship with camera is very uh, difficult. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny that how much work we have made with the lens-based uh, medium. You know, we have uh, made uh, so many videos individually, like we, that's a medium that we're comfortable with and we tend to make a, perform for the camera a lot. Um, and we do it collaboratively. And also we use camera to uh, make stills, to record uh, where we do sometimes um, these playful interventions pub in public spaces or these uh, make-believe scenarios, you know, that are sometimes edited or crafted or manipulated. And um, and so the camera is a very sort of, has been a friend to us throughout, you know, for a very long time in our practices. And I also feel that it's a sort of like the post-printmaking age in a way where we think about, you know, it's kind of like an easy, uh, quick medium. I, when I say easy, I don't mean that it's easy. Um, <laughs> and and because we think about the camera like that, it's sort of become very, very absent from our uh, personal lives. You know, so it's now in, in a way only, uh, it, it's become sacred in a way, in terms of like it's that medium is important for the work that we do and how we think about it. And it's very difficult to use it. I mean, uh, we don't have any photographs together of ourselves, just as two people, or just as friends, or just, you know. Because we, we take photographs of our, ourselves at places for the work. Yeah. <laughs> so we will never have one for the opera house, us in front of the opera house. You see, and that sometimes can be, can be very strange in a way, because uh, I'm sure we started to make these decisions unconsciously at some point, but right now we're very, very conscious about it. And to be honest, it's very difficult to come uh, back from it to you know to be also be able to use so there is some way uh, in a distinction between the everyday lived experience you know at least in terms of like the tools you use the way you think about yourself and you if you're the subject and the object of your own work how does that play out so this decision to document or not to document i'll i'll be very honest i feel like we'll 
always make the decision not to document. And then from a position of that, we'll think about, okay, what is the most kind of like crucial one moment that needs, can, can be recorded? And then one thing is enough so that we, we're not selective in the sense that we make a lot of documentation and then select one. We usually stick to one. Yeah. I would say that uh, for, for all the works except Dropping Tears Together, which we're performing on Friday, the document is not a document of only for the performance. The document becomes a work in its own right. So we think of documents. So for example, for the tea party that we did in India, um, the documentation of the live performance was consciously, even in that moment, meant to be a stop-motion animation later on. So we were making work through this live performance. Um, then there's another work that I do, which, is, which was initially a video, then a live performance, but the video and the live performance are standalone works. They're not documentations of each other. Um, similarly, the email. Like, we're very conscious that the documentation should inform the work and the work should inform the document. It's never mere documentation. So can I say that maybe perhaps we think about it in like three stages instead of like the work and the documentation being like a black and white relationship, we have like this third degree of like gray. So um, going back to what Ravya was also sa just saying, I think a lot of our uh, collaborative work and some of like, uh, you know, my um, solo work also has this idea that if there is a performance that um, is a live work then somehow it's one of its uh, variations is going to be recorded for a video and it's it's going to become like a parallel to the work kind of a video work and then there is a documentation of the live work and there's always this kind of a entitling the works I feel like I'm constantly confused about you know how to kind of think about the live work as an event the documentation of it as the documentation of that work and then the video work being like a complementary substitution or parallel what like role does it play because sometimes I feel like I also think about video uh, uh, more and it doesn't need to capture everything that the live performance offers you know so hence it's a work on its own sorry but I think that has a lot to do with uh, our art scene back home because we wouldn't ever imagine a lot probably I'm just retrospectively thinking that we would never imagine a live performance to just be a live performance because we don't have the infrastructure for doing live art. Um, the gallery would give you the gallery for one hour, one evening, and that too if the gallery has other works to sustain themselves. But then if a work is just live art and you don't have a video out of it or an art object out of it or a residue that is a standalone work, it becomes very difficult for you to keep your work up in the space uh, because you can't. And it's very, very recent that now you can, there's avenues for performance art, but those are also a lot like carnivals. And some artists don't want to perform in those carnivals uh, because, yeah. And then what is the difference between an art exhibition and a carnival and so on and so forth. Um, so it, I think it has a lot to, the way we think about documentation and performance and it has a lot to do with, for practical reasons also.
it's also located within geographies and space as well there. And I would say the way that you described it, there's like a fluidity or slippages between practices and the residues or however they are. And some of that may be practical necessities and some of it is conscious or unconscious choices that you guys are making. What do you think are the responsibilities of the artist in the contemporary world? <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> they have big responsibilities. A lot of it. <laughs> we can end it. <laughs> big responsibility. Head to our website visualarts.net.au for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.